Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Mike Weeks, along with Chris Oliver this morning. Brian Curtis is away and will return in a few weeks' time. U.S. stocks were hammered with biotech and other technology high flyers leading the declines overnight. Hong Kong welcomes the long-awaited through train of cross-border stock trading and new problems with encryption technology surface. In our featured segments this morning, we'll look at China's latest trade data with Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. We'll also talk about plans to link the stock exchanges of Shanghai and Hong Kong. Joining us for that discussion is Sean Darby, Chief Global Equity Strategist at Jefferies. And then it's on to golf and what to watch for in the second round at the Masters Tournament underway in Augusta, Georgia. Danny Hicks, editor of Sport Direct at AFP, will join us for that. And Adam Scott has made a storming start to the Masters. But first to the share markets, and uh, stocks look like fo- are falling in early Asian trade this morning after anxiety about pricey tech stocks returned with a vengeance to Wall Street overnight. The tech-rich Nasdaq index dropped over 3% to 4,054, its biggest single-day drop since November 2011. The Dow sank 266 points to 16,170, while the broad-based S&P 500 fell over 2% to 1830. But it wasn't all doom and gloom in the tech sector. The online marketplace eBay has reached a deal with activist investor Carl Icahn, who'd taken a stake in eBay in January and began campaigning to split off the PayPal payments unit. John Donohoe is eBay's president and CEO. What's happened in this case is Jimmy Lee, who's the vice chairman of J.P. Morgan, called me last week. He had happened to be meeting with Carl on an unrelated topic. And he said, look, John, I think you and Carl should spend more time together. And we did over the weekend. And we talked repeatedly on the phone. And we focused on not separation or not separation. We focused on the fundamentals of PayPal's business, of eBay's business. We focused on the enormous opportunities that are in front of our company. And once we did that, we had strong common ground. And we'll continue that dialogue going forward. Local investors will be allowed to trade in mainland shares for the first time later this year, and vice versa, when a pilot scheme linking up Hong Kong Stock Exchange with the Shanghai Bourse is put in place. Premier Li Keqiang confirmed the highly anticipated cross-border investment scheme at the opening of the Bao Economic Forum. An executive vice president with Sinopec Securities Asia, Steve Bernstein, said the link-up, first proposed in 2007, is a significant step in the opening up of the mainland market. I think it's something that, as time goes on, it shows that uh, China is opening up its borders, and not just for currency, but also for financial transactions. So I think it is significant. You know, this started in 2007, and it got scrapped in 2010. And now that they're, you know, they're, they're rolling it out, I think it, it will have positive implications, obviously, and obviously the market thinks so, too, because it's uh, done well on the back of it. Mr. Bernstein was asked if Hong Kong would benefit more from the deal or Shanghai. I think initially probably Hong Kong, because I think we'll see a lot of flows in from China to Hong Kong. I think there's a maximum of $10.5 billion a day, Juan, which is something about 20 to 25 percent of the daily turnover. So I think initially we'll probably see it go, uh, the benefit more from uh, into Hong Kong. But I think over time, uh, you know, we'll, um, I think over time uh, China will benefit as well. 
Steve Bernstein from Sinopec Securities. International Monetary Fund Chief Christine Lagarde says the IMF has become a collateral victim of US politics, preventing it from completing a sweeping funding increase and reform plan. She said that four years after being agreed by the IMF, the plan has become stuck on Capitol Hill. Mrs Lagarde was speaking at the annual IMF World Bank meeting in Washington. She said the overriding theme of the meeting was the quest for higher and better quality global growth. She said her chief concerns looking ahead are geopolitical instability and low inflation in advanced economies, particularly in Europe. An extended period of low inflation in the advanced economies. Topic has been discussed. Uh, We are concerned about this potential risk in advanced economies in general, in the euro area in particular, where we know that prolonged low inflation would hurt both growth and jobs. And in this context, it is encouraging that the ECB has reiterated its commitment to use unconventional measures as needed. Internet security experts are scrambling to deal with a bug that exploited a flaw in a key piece of software. The Heartbleed bug has been found in the web encryption technology OpenSSL, which is used by hundreds of thousands of websites to ensure secure communication. Heartbleed could allow hackers to access personal data such as passwords or credit card details. So far, there have been no reports of attacks, but some experts have advised computer users to change their passwords. However, Chester Sung from the Internet Society Hong Kong says, while this will help, it won't protect you in the long run. That solved the immediate problem, but it doesn't solve the long-term problem because once you use the new password to communicate with the same, using the same version of the OpenSSL server and client, uh, you know, then the information still get exposed. So... It is up to Internet service providers and other web companies to fix the security lapse. Chester Sung uh, reports again. Well, it's pretty much up to the um, companies to, to do because obviously, you know, if you are just a user, you know, you can check your, whether your browser support, you know, opens itself of more current versions which are not vulnerable to, to this, you know, or compatible with more advanced versions so that, you know, uh, you can communicate with a server that that uses more advanced version of the software, which is which are not vulnerable to, to the same, you know, attack. The browser that we use or a, a, a general user uses is only a key or a token that the locksmith or the lock, you know, pro, uh, manufacturer gives you. So if there's any flaw with um, the lock itself, then, I mean, the, the holder of the key doesn't really, uh, you know, have much to, to do about it. Briefly, in markets around the region, uh, they're t- we're trading lower, as, pa- as can be expected after the weak uh, U.S. numbers overnight. Uh, the Nikkei is down. It's off uh, 100, uh, 260 points at 14,039. Uh, in, Austra- in Australia, we're also down two-tenths of 1%. And in Korea, we're down 1.1%. In, in currencies, the dollar is trading at 101.38 yen. Against the euro, it's at 1.38 U.S. dollars. And the fixing of the wand is at 6.151. As we mentioned earlier in the program, uh, China has unveiled plans to connect the stock exchanges of Hong Kong and Shanghai. Initially, the scheme will enable uh, 23.5 billion renminbi worth of daily cross-border stock trading. 
The plan is similar to the so-called through train that would have allowed mainlanders to invest directly in Hong Kong stocks. That plan was initially muted in 2007, but was never implemented. Joining us on the program right now is uh, Sean Darby. Sean is the Chief Global Equity Strategist at Jefferies. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. So is this a big deal? Well, it is. I think if you look back at um, when the the proposed through train in 2007 was scuttled, it was all about um, the ability for the authorities in China to control the flow of RMB. But since then, we've had, of course, enormous relaxations of, um, in the process of using RMB for, uh, for trade, um, and pilot schemes have come and gone on that, and it's worked very well. And now it's been extended to financial, mar- financial markets and uh, essentially makes the um, uh, current uh, QFI and QDII schemes uh, redundant. So the, the daily trade flow that's permitted under this scheme is relatively small initially. I have, uh, it's, it's about 21% of average daily uh, value of shares bought and sold in Hong Kong. But is that like a pilot number and will it be relaxed and boosted as we go along? Well, I'm sure it will be. Uh, again, I suspect if you looked back at the other um, programs that were used to relax controls on the RMB over the last four years, the, it was always a, always initially a tentative amount and, uh, and post uh, post a period of introduction uh, that that tends to be um, extended. And I would also add that uh, it's quite possible, looking out further, that uh, a variety of other financial assets that are traded on the exchanges, whether it's bonds, uh, commodities, or other items. Um, would, would, would probably also be part of that um, uh, program of cross-border trading. So how does this affect your view as a strategist? Would you say this is time to build up exposure to Hong Kong and China? Well, the way I would look at it, I would say it in three, three, three ways. I say it was very long-term positive on the whole financial reforms. You know, only a couple of uh, months ago, people were talking about the uh, the problems of the corporate bond defaults and uh, more recently, uh, the sort of carry trade in the RMB unwinding. But uh, there's been no um, uh, essentially retreat by the authorities in China on, on financial reform. So I think that's a very big positive, number one. Number two, I think it um, adds a lot of depth to the Hong Kong equity market. It will make um, IPOs and a whole range of products much more easier to underwrite. And thirdly, um, I think ultimately, as I pointed out, there'd be a much broader product uh, mix for Hong Kong. So for the financial industry overall, it should be very, very good news. So what's your best trading idea at the moment? Well, I think on Hong Kong, I think certainly the exchange probably stands out to benefit the most from this. I mean, it's the most obvious uh, way of, uh, of playing the theme. I think uh, sort of longer term, you'd have to take the view that uh, sort of the uh, Hong Kong dollar will probably become redundant in a, in, in a sense. Most, uh, most products or trades that you can do during a day will probably be now be able to be done through the RMB. And uh, I think longer term, you, you'd still want to be um, very much involved with the, with the Hong Kong exchange. I think that's the, that's the most obvious candidate. And just another question about the high flyers in Hong Kong recently, the China Internet stocks and the ones that are listed in China and, and coming forward to uh, IPO soon. Does this mean that those stocks could also get a little bit of a benefit? Well, I, I, I don't want to rest generalize too much. I, I think uh, markets have been um, extremely frothy at the end of last year globally and particularly in the United States. 
I think we're in for a difficult quarter in US for earnings. We'll probably get a negative quarter on quarter, given what's happening with the, with the winter vortex. And I'm not surprised that we've seen some of the profit taking that we have done in those, those counters over the last few days. And I suspect that uh, we've probably got a little bit more unwinding of that uh, over, the next, uh, over the next month. Just a, f- a wrap-up question. We're almost midway through April, and we all know about the saying, sell in May and go away. Would you be selling in April? No, I, I think monetary conditions globally are still very relaxed. And um, looking at you know, long-term returns, I know whilst uh, mar- equity market returns are nowhere near going to be as stellar as we saw last year, I still feel that they're going to outperform bonds in real terms. And I think that's what matters to investors. It's the real returns. And equities ought to do still quite well this year. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Sean. That's Sean Darby, Chief Global Equity Strategist at Jefferies. Moving on now, so we have China's trade data disappointed in March. Exports were down 6.6% on-year, and imports were down 11.4% on-year. But some analysts think that the figures were distorted by what's called over-invoicing of shipments. Those are shipments to Hong Kong and Taiwan. Stripping out those numbers, they say, exports grew nearly 8% globally. I'd like to welcome to the program Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Chris. How are you? What do you make of the China data that was out yesterday? Well, a a lot of talk about this over-invoicing, and there is some truth in that, although you do have to be a little bit careful because analysts do have a habit of taking an economic number and then stripping out all the bad bits from it to make the the number look better. But having said that, I mean, it was March last year that the Chinese authorities did start to clamp down on this um, sort of over-invoicing, and it was a way in which... Chinese companies could try and get around some of the capital controls and bring uh, bring more money into the country. But I think, you know, the, the main thing is there's, there's, there's two points here. The first is the, the Chinese economy is clearly slowing um, and the Chinese economy is very dependent upon the global economy. So as countries such as the US slow down, they will, um, they will suck in less imports from China. But I think what's more important is the balance of that um, sort of economic growth, which is in China really unsustainable because investment is... Um, 55% of GDP in um, China compared to a world average of about um, 24%. So that's sort of undesirable and the, and the Chinese authorities want to try and um, sort of rebalance the economy, particularly as a lot of that investment is um, is, is fueled by, by credit. So you could argue that borrowing to fund infrastructure investment is better than borrowing to fund um, consumer expenditure, which is what's going on in the US. But nevertheless, the quality of these investments is now um, deteriorating. You um, obviously heard the news yesterday about the through train has finally arrived. So is this a game changer that uh, some people think it is? Or we've been hanging on for a while for this. I, I, it's certainly important, particularly for the Hong Kong exchange. I mean, this is uh, this is a major coup for, for, for Charles Lee, who you know wants to um, you know see Hong Kong as a as a major conduit both for funds into China and um, and out of China. I think it also shows that the the Chinese government is determined to continue down the path of liberalising the financial system and the economy. 
ultimately, I think it wants to have an open capital accounts, but it can't do that in one go, not with a, an economy the size of, um, of China. Um, and this is another step along the way in which slowly um, it is becoming easier to bring money into China and, and to take money out of China. So it is a very important step. Um, we need to see the, you know, the details of how exactly this is going to work. And, there, you know, there are details that need to be ironed out. But I think this is, a, you know, this is a major, major initiative. So it's arriving just as China's economy is beginning to slow, and the target yep. this year, 7.5 percent, is a huge question mark whether or not actually China will make that number. So would you, you know, share this optimism about the through chain, given that China is just about to, to decelerate? Well, some of the policies that um, you know, the reform policies that the governments are introducing, will naturally show slow the economy in in the short term because the government is determined to try and slow down the credit boom. It does not want to see, um, you know, more um, sort of wasted infrastructure projects. It doesn't want to see an expansion of, you know, the, the shadow sort of banking system. So it's determined to rein that in. Um, banks are, you know, slowing down their lending. They're imposing more rigorous standards. And, and that in itself is going to naturally slow down in the short term the Chinese economy. But these are essential reforms in the longer term for the Chinese economy. As I mentioned, you know, um, investment is a very, very large part of the economy. That has to be rebalanced, and, and these reforms are, um, are an essential part of that. The consumer is not a big part of the economy. That's another, um, you know, rebalancing that needs to, needs to take place. So just switching gears for a moment, there, in the past week there's been a turn back to old economy stocks being in favor. I think we've seen quite a bounce in some of the names there. But what do you make of uh, these old economy names such as Chinese banks? Are they the, is this the time to be buying? Well, they reached very, very low levels of valuation. I mean, some of the, some of the Chinese banks were trading on you know, price earnings multiples of just five. Um, so regardless of you know, a slowdown in the economy, first of all, you know, these, um, these banks, are going to be protected by the government. So despite the fact that they may have some problematic loans on their books, and we've seen recently now um, some of these loans um, you know, being defaulted on, um, you know, th at those sort of levels, they do become very attractive, regardless of um, the, the short to medium term prospects for the, for the Chinese economy. So are there any other sectors apart from banks that you're bullish on at the moment? Well, you know, I, I'm rather negative, as, as, as Brian will tell you, about equity markets overall. I, I think valuations are extended um, around the world, particularly in, the, particularly in the US. We're seeing now a big correction in particular in, in tech stocks and, and biotech stocks. And these tend to um, you know, feed upon themselves because some of these stocks are very widely owned, particularly by hedge funds that follow momentum plays and have long short strategies with these stocks in them. And, and when these types of momentum stocks turn, they turn very quickly because the hedge funds get margin calls, they have to unwind very quickly, and I think you know, we start to feed this upon itself. And one of the problems we have is that the markets are held up by uh, a, a wave of money from, from the central banks, and we're starting to see that stimulus being um, withdrawn. We're seeing it in the US, we've seen the Jap Japan this week, the Bank of Japan say that it's not going to put any more stimulus into the market. The Chinese Premier has said the same thing, they're not going mm -hmm. to provide more short-term mm -hmm. Stimulus. So can these markets, you know, sustain these types of valuations when we're not going to see this sort of wave of money going into them anymore? And that's the, the, really the big question now that, uh, that, that we're going to find out the answer to over the next few months. So as I put the question to our previous guest, Sean, would you be a seller of stocks now ahead of the May? I, I would be. 
I, I would be. I, I think, you know, valuations are high, particularly in the US, particularly as we're seeing right now in, you know, in tech stocks, biotech stocks. Um, I think in other, you know, emerging markets, you know, some of the valuations of, um, of you know, have rebounded from, from lows, maybe not as high as some of the developed world sort of stocks. But I think the, the key thing is, you know, the, the withdrawal of monetary stimulus. And I think, you know, this is the time to take some money off the table, take a pause and see how that um, sort of plays out on the markets. And what about gold? Well, you know, gold, um, last year, gold was one of the worst performing assets. Um, if you believe, as I do, that, you know, one of the effects of all of this monetary printing is to debase the value of currencies. You know, if you start printing money to, in, in effect, you know, buy up government debt, you are, you know, really de- debasing the value of that currency, then gold is not a bad bet. And, and gold, you know, has been, um, you know, hammered over the, over the past year. It's rebounded a bit uh, this year. I, I would tend to be a, an accumulator of gold. Just turning for a a final comment on Japan, Uh, it's been almost two weeks since uh, we saw the sales tax was increased there, I think to 8% from 5%. Uh, And there was one news story out uh, this week about a Japanese department store that had released some sales data and said that uh, since the tax had been unveiled, uh, retail sales were down about 25%. Is this a major risk factor to the Japanese economy? Yeah, this was Takashimaya who um, you know who came out with their um, retail sales numbers. When when the sales tax was last um, increased um, from three percent to to five percent, um, it caused a big recession in Japan, um, and actually tax revenues declined as a, as a result. Um, and Prime Minister Hashimoto at the time had to resign. So the last sales tax increase was a big um, issue for the Japanese economy. This time there is a stimulus package going along um, uh, alongside it to try and negate that but I think you know one of the problems is that you know Japan does have to follow a path of, um, of financial reform again to try and rebalance um, its economy as well so it doesn't have much choice um, about how to do this but unfortunately one of the problems is that all the mon- monetary stimulus that we've been seeing in Japan just like in the US has also failed to boost the Japanese economy um, you know uh, GDP growth was about 1% last year we saw a record uh, trade deficits in uh, January. We've seen until the last month, four consecutive months of current account deficits. Stimulus does not have the effect on the economy that, uh, you know, that really the central bankers hope. We've seen that in Europe, we've seen that in the US, and we're seeing that in Japan as well now, 16 months down the road. Thank you very much uh, for joining us, Peter. That's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to turn to sports now on Money for Nothing because round one of the Masters Golf Tournament has just finished in Augusta. The event is a major fixture on the annual golf calendar for its championship play. It also has a tradition of shying away from excess sports branding. Well, we welcome Danny Hicks, editor of Sport Direct at AFP Sports. Good morning again, Danny. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, Let's get to sports branding and other marketing at the Masters (laughs) in just a minute. But first, to the business end of the tournament, who's leading? Uh, Bill Haas, American. Um, you may know the name Haas. His father, Jay Haas, was a, was a leading golfer for many, many years. But Bill's up there, four under par 68 today. But uh, there's a whole gaggle of really, really top-class players behind him. Adam Scott, the uh, reigning champion, of course, minus three. Uh, three under par today. Uh, Louis Westhazen, the former Open champion, three under as well. And Bubba Watson, uh, the champion two years ago at Augusta. Uh, the only bogey-free round of the day, three under par. So watch out for Bubba. He's, uh, he's always good around there. 
A good start then for Adam Scott. He could become the first back-to-back champion at Augusta since Tiger Woods in 2002. Some people led by Rory McIlroy have said the Masters is not the same place without Woods and that golf is lacking a leader at the moment. Do you go along with that? Uh, yeah, well, there, there's a, I go along with that to a certain extent, but there's a great opportunity here, isn't there, for, for a leader to uh, stick their hand up and be counted, and, and Rory will count, him, count himself as one of those uh, leading players who, after a, a dodgy season, as we know, last year, is it, it, somewhere back towards his best and uh, could make an impression here. And he had a good first round, uh, uh, one under par, um, right in the mix, uh, three shots off the lead, Long way to go yet at Augusta and, uh, you know, don't count out people like Rory McIlroy. But there's also young guns like Jordan Spieth, also one under par. Just 20 years old, youngest ever winner on the PGA Tour last year. Lovely, lovely lad, got a fantastic golf game and more to the point, a fantastic short game, which is what you need around Augusta. He's right there as well. Huge prizes, of course, on offer at Augusta in terms of cash, but but the Masters mm. isn't really all about cash. Is no, it? it isn't, and it's it's probably the, it's it's got the smallest purse of any of, any of the, what you would say the major golf tournaments, and also the sort of WGC tournaments, which are which are kind of second tier of the majors. Eight million dollars. I mean, not a small amount of money. One point four million dollars to the winner. But you know, these players would turn up and play for nothing at Augusta. It's got an aura. It's got a tradition. It's what I love about watching Augusta is, for me, it starts the real sporting season. We've got the FA Cup semi-finals this weekend. We're looking forward to a World Cup, and we're starting the majors. But Augusta has that tradition that the caddies wear the all-white boiler suits. They're not allowed to wear branded caps. They have to wear the Augusta national cap. Uh, there's no on-course advertising boards around. Uh, the, the the branding that the you know it's shied away from. The, the sort of the lure of the, the big bucks that all the other major sporting events in the world are, are going for. And also in terms of TV rights and things like that, they restrict the coverage to three, four hours of live coverage a day, um, which is a bit frustrating for those of us who want to watch everybody <laughs> play every shot, but yeah. it means I get some sleep at night. But uh, uh, it, it's also quite refreshing in that they say, no, we have a tradition, this is what we do, and we're going to stick to it. And I think the players love that. Do you think that's going to continue? I know that there's been some changes to the course, haven't there, particularly this year. The Sherman Pine, I think, has gone on the 17th. The Eisenhower Tree. The Eisenhower Tree, sorry. The yeah. Lobberly Pine. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, there was an ice storm earlier this year and uh, it was damaged beyond repair and they've had to remove it on the 17th, which, you know, these things happen. Um, the course has had to be lengthened over the years because of the increases in technology and the, and the distances that these players are striking the ball. You know, Rory McIlroy averages 315, 320 yards per drive, which is, you know, something likes of me and you might can only dream of. But you um, think the tradition of the tournament is going to stay there? Yeah, I think so. I think because it's something that's, that's unique on the sporting calendar and uh, uh, long may it continue. I, I think the fact that, you know, tickets are hard to come by, uh, the fact that, you you know, you it's a restricted field. There's only 97 in the field, which is one of the largest Masters fields ever. You know, other majors have 156 players. Only 97. It's such an elite field. You know, anybody within 10 shots of the lead at the moment, with three oh. rounds to play, is right in the mix. Hmm. And uh, the course will harden up over the next few days. There's been a bit of rain earlier in the week, and that will really bring the uh, the top players into it. OK, just one quick final note of prediction for you, who's, from you. Who's going to win? Uh, well, I like Adam Scott to retain it, but it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, Bubba Watson, you know, bogey-free. If he, if he goes four hmm. rounds bogey-free, he wins. It's simple as that. But look out for somebody like Jordan Spieth, as I say. And, uh, you know, Henrik Stenson, Lee Westwood, there on one over par. Henrik Stenson won both money lists last year. He's not out of it either. Yeah, 
Who knows? That's the okay. beauty of sport. We'll be glued to it for the next three days, Mike. OK, thanks, Danny. Danny Hicks, the editor of Sport Direct at AFP Sports. Just briefly, uh, in markets, uh, the sell-off is uh, picking up speed in Japan with the uh, Nikkei is down 361 points. Uh, that's down 2.5%. And the yen is uh, picking up a little bit of speed itself. It's at 101.44 yen. That's the Japanese yen strengthening against the dollar. The news now with Samantha Butler. The United States has condemned what it called Russia's efforts to use energy as a tool of coercion against Ukraine. A spokeswoman for the U.S. State Department, Jen Psaki, said the price Ukraine was now having to pay Russia for its gas following recent price hikes was clearly not set by market forces. The BBC's Beth McLeod reports. Referring to the recent large rises in the amount of money Russia charges Ukraine for its natural gas, the State Department spokesperson, Jen Psaki, said the US condemns Russia's efforts to use energy as a tool of coercion. President Obama has spoken over the phone to the German Chancellor Angela Merkel as concern grows that the crisis in Ukraine could threaten gas supplies to European countries, some of which import the majority of their gas from Russia via pipelines through Ukraine. The U.S. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew told his Russian counterpart that Washington would impose a new round of sanctions on Moscow if Russia continues to escalate the crisis. Officials in the United States say that Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius is resigning from the Obama administration. It follows a troubled rollout of President Obama's health insurance law, which is seen as one of his main domestic achievements. The website where people could enroll for health insurance ran into frequent problems on its launch. The United Nations Security Council has voted to send almost 12,000 peacekeepers to the Central African Republic. 8,000 African Union and French soldiers are currently attempting to restore order in the country amid ongoing violence between Christian and Muslim armed groups. The Central African Republic